This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now, here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 2. Early in the Gospel of Luke, we find an amazing count of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth. After he was baptized and spent 40 days in the wilderness, he entered a synagogue on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders handed him a scroll of scripture to read publicly. Jesus opened to what we know as Isaiah chapter 61 and read these words. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After reading that passage, he rolled up the scroll, returned it to the attendant, and sat down. Yet no one in the place could take their eyes off of Jesus. In that moment, he proclaimed, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And with that statement, Jesus claimed that he was the very one being spoken of by the prophet Isaiah 700 years earlier. The Spirit of God had anointed Jesus to proclaim good news, to give sight to the blind, to set the captives free. And through explaining this Old Testament passage, Jesus wanted his hearers to understand his identity as the promised Messiah. At first, the people marveled. They spoke well of him, but not long after, They tried to throw him over a cliff. And like our culture today, people were divided on what to do with Jesus. Early in the book of Acts, we find another amazing account of the apostle Peter in the streets of Jerusalem. After he was baptized by the Holy Spirit, he stood and publicly read scripture on the Sabbath day, just like his Savior had done, and proclaimed what it meant. Since people had heard in their own languages the mighty works of God, Peter explained, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Peter preached to the people of the person and work of Jesus as the Messiah. But this audience was also divided over what they would do with Jesus. Today we arrive at the first of many sermons located in the book of Acts. I believe here we discover a blueprint for all Christian preaching and teaching, bearing witness to the scripture, proclaiming and exalting the Christ to whom it points, and exhorting each listener in a fitting response. And so what I aim to do this morning is just that, to bear witness to the scripture to exalt and magnify the person and work of Jesus Christ, to whom it all points, and to find fitting response for each of us to God's holy and inerrant word. 
the shaping question that I would like to frame our sermon, I hope will become clear as we move on, but I pray each of us would have a clear answer to this question. What have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? In Acts 2, 14 to 41, we find the first sermon recorded in Scripture, in the New Testament, Christian sermon, that is. The Apostle Peter offers an exposition that explains what Scripture says and what it means to his listeners. And at the center of this message is the glorious gospel of Jesus. The sermon then concludes with this compelling and clear invitation that teaches us that the good news demands a response from every heart. As we look at the sermon of Peter, I want to look at this sermon under three headings. First, an exposition of Scripture. Second, the proclamation of Christ. And third, an invitation to respond. I'm going to leave you seated because it's a lengthy passage today, but it bears reading in full. Um, Likely, Peter's sermon was longer than three and a half minutes. Some of you wish my sermons would not be longer than three and a half minutes. But what's Luke, he says later in this text that, that Peter said many other things, so what you have here is a summary, a synopsis of the main things that Peter drives home in this sermon on the day of Pentecost. Read with me Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. This is God's perfect, holy, and inerrant word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence 
about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. Of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. In the first section of this sermon, we see an exposition of Scripture, verses 14 to 21. Luke has described the events of Pentecost. Now Peter explains them. An exposition of Scripture is the task of a preacher. John Stott says like this, to bring out of the text what is there and to expose it. And that's exactly what Peter does here. He brings out what is here in this passage and exposes it so that every one of his hearers can understand what is happening around them. In this crowd that we were introduced to last week, some were amazed by the wonders of God and some were appalled by them. The latter group goes on here to accuse the disciples of drunkenness, probably because the Christians were were filled and overflowing with outrageous joy. Perhaps there's contagious laughter for all that God was doing. But Peter stands up and says soberly, and I think, Uh, humorously, guys, it's nine o'clock in the morning. No one's drunk here. And then he addresses the crowd. The meaning of the scripture, he taught them this. Pentecost was God keeping his promise. Luke had described it. Now Peter says this is what it means. This is what it says. God was keeping his promise. As people heard the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their native tongues, it was important that they understood this wasn't just some attention-grabbing circus. It was God fulfilling his word. 
I love how the authorized version uh, translates this phrase. This is that. This is that. This remarkable event that you're witnessing today here at Pentecost is that promise from long ago that God had spoken through the prophet Joel. And then Peter quoted Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which contains a description of the last days. Peter's quotation of this prophecy at Pentecost was the signal that the last days had begun. You've probably heard that phrase used, the last days. While some tend to associate that phrase, the last days, solely with the time closely connected with the return of Christ, the phrase actually refers to the entire period between the day of Pentecost and the second coming of Christ. And so these disciples living in the first century were in the last days, the final era in the timeline of history, and we also live in that same era called the last days. Why is that important? Why mention that here? Well, because God promised in the last days that he would pour out his spirit. Particularly, verses 17 and 18 read, that he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. This doesn't mean that every person in the world would receive the spirit of God, but every kind of person, regardless of outward status. The promise is not limited to an age range or gender. You notice the young and the old, male and female. It's not bound only to a certain social standing or tax bracket. We see servants are included in this pouring out of the Spirit. God would do this to all his people, every heart that loved him, every person that had believed in Jesus as Savior has been baptized in the Spirit. The Spirit of God been poured out in their life. And Peter explains how what the crowd was witnessing right in front of their eyes, this is that. This is that promise of old. And what it meant for the onlooking crowd is that they could get in on it. It was for them too. They could know the promises of God and the fullness of his spirit because Pentecost was God keeping his promise, but it was also an invitation. The invitation I'm referring to is found in verse 20. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This invitation extends far beyond the border of Israel to include every tribe and tongue and nation of the world. That invitation extends to you today. What does it mean then to call on the name of the Lord. Well, it means to believe in him, to cry out to him for forgiveness of sin, to ask for his salvation, knowing he's the only one who can give it. And Peter explains the meaning of scripture in his exposition and what it means in their lives. They too would be able to know the fullness of the spirit and live in the promise of God in their lives. The pastoral application I want to draw from this verse is the reminder that when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to all gospel growth, really, the Word does the work. The Word does the work. The Word of God does the work of God 
by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. I worked really hard on that sentence. I want to say it again. The work, uh, the word, I have, now I've messed it up. That's just fitting. The word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. Do you see Peter's confidence in Scripture? He doesn't begin by sharing his words about Christ. He begins with God's words about Jesus. And one of the reasons we're so committed to expositional preaching and the faithful practice of explaining what the Bible says and what it means is because we believe in the power of God's word. We don't have to rely on, and particularly even when you're sharing the good news of Jesus with a lost loved one, friend, family member, you don't have to rely on your spectacular creativity or on how wonderfully articulate you say things. No, just be faithful to give people the word of God. The word will do the work. Our confidence is not in ourselves, but in every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What is it saying, and what does it mean? The second section of Peter's sermon, and the heart of this entire passage, contains the proclamation of Christ. Verses 22 to 35. What happens here in the sermon is the same thing that must be true of all Christian witness. We must share the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Peter asks his listeners to lean in a little closer here because he wants to speak to them of his Savior. And so let's us lean in together a little closer to this passage. As we see the four facts of Christ that he presents, it's vital that the audience that he's speaking to and you and I today understand these truths spoken are not subjective opinions They are objective facts about who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension, all in order to save sinners. The first fact that Peter preaches is the life of Christ, verse 22. He claims that Jesus of Nazareth is not just a man, but the promised Messiah whose identity was attested to or affirmed or proven by God himself. That Jesus wasn't just a man, but God in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. The evidence of this just piles up with every miracle, every sign, every wonder that Jesus performed during his ministry on earth. Scores of people through scripture are dying to know by whose authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? We see what's happening all around us. By whose authority are you able to do these things? They ask that, but they never doubt the validity of them, do they? By whose authority? Yes. The validity, no. And we see by whose authority it was God himself. Behind the signs was God seen in the life of Christ. The second fact that Peter points out is the death of Christ in verse 23. This verse teaches us, on one hand, that the death of Christ was no accident, but part of an eternal plan of redemption. On the other hand, it shows that mankind is responsible for crucifying Christ. 
The same event is attributed simultaneously both to the purpose of God and the wickedness of men. One scholar said, Peter brings the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans together, not even attempting to explain how both can occur, but just assuming the reality. The most wicked act in human history was performed by people's own choice and was carried out according to the sovereign, predestined plan of God. Yet, without making God liable for people's actions or responsible for their guilt. While this is all we have here recorded on the death of Christ, just a passing statement it seems, the same Peter would later write to a group of scattered Christians honing in on why Jesus had to die. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he writes that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. It gives you the clear reason why Jesus did die. He died to carry our sins to the cross, to make payment for what we had done. The sinless one standing in the stead of ruined sinners. The next fact Peter outlines is the resurrection of Christ. Verses 24 through 32. So Christ had died, but Christ is also risen. We learn that even death was not able to hold Jesus in its painful grip. But on the third day, he rose to life again. God raised him from the dead. And Peter wants us to see this is not a new idea. This is buried in the passages of the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm 16 where David there sings of how his soul will not go to the place of the dead and his body would not see corruption and decay. Yet everyone knew that David couldn't really be singing of himself there. Why is that true? Because they all knew the place where David was buried, right there outside of Jerusalem. So David wasn't singing of himself. Rather, he wrote these songs in a prophetic sense prophesying, foreseeing that eventually his heir, his eventual heir, great David's greater son, Christ the true and better David, would be the king to come who would forever sit on the throne and rule and reign over the people of God. That's what the resurrection, and then ultimately we'll see in a moment, the ascension means. But notice first, in the midst of all of this, Peter makes it clear we are all witnesses. This massive group of people saw Jesus die with their own eyes and saw him live again. Jesus is the only person in history who has died, was raised to life, and then never died again. And if that's true, every person in this room has to come to grips with that reality. Each one of us must face that fact. And if it is true, he demands the worship of every heart. And if it's not true, we deserve to be pitied above all people. But these first witnesses passed on exactly what they had seen to the next generation and to the next and through the ages. And here we are in this long line of witnesses to the truthfulness of the person and work of Christ. We're not guessing. 
We want to be faithful just to continue to proclaim and be witnesses ourselves. We can't be firsthand like they were. We must be firsthand witnesses to the resurrected Christ at work in our lives. Finally, Peter lifts their gaze to the ascension of Christ, verses 33 to 36. We could also call this the exaltation of Jesus. If you want to read more about that, you can read this afternoon, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. That sing of that truth. He explains that Jesus Christ is right now ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. And from this position of ultimate power, he has poured out his Holy Spirit upon his people, coming to dwell in us. And then Peter ends where he began, by telling the crowd that this Jesus, whom you crucified, was the very one who had come to save them from their sins. And yet they are the ones who killed the Savior. The final verses of Peter's sermon include an invitation to respond. Verses 35 to 41. And as we think about this invitation, we would do well to notice that the crowd does not even wait for Peter to offer an invitation. There's no choir singing just as I am the eighth time through. There's no anxious bench at the front of the room for people to come up and kneel. No, there's none of that. God's word was proclaimed. The gospel had been explained. And the word did the work. The spirit of the risen, living Christ pierced through to the heart of men and women. And that is how the gospel works. It works from the inside out. That's exactly what we find here. The first response we see is that the people are cut to the heart. Before an invitation is given, their hearts are ruined in the light of this news. Their eyes may have been blind to their own sin, being an offense to God, but now they see. Their ears had been closed to the goodness and sweetness of the gospel, but now they hear. Their hearts may have been hard as stone, but at last their hearts are open. And they ask the preacher a question which every preacher longs to hear after proclaiming Jesus. What do we do? What do we do about this? What do we do with Jesus? They realize they must do something. They see their sin. They've been told the, something of the Savior. They believed this news about Jesus being the promised one of old, the one the scriptures had prophesied of, the one who would ultimately bring forgiveness. And they feel the weight of their guilt and the burden of their shame, and they realize they are sinners in need of a savior. So Peter tells them how to respond to the good news of the gospel. The first step is repentance, to repent of sin. Repentance is is not less than telling God we're sorry for our sins, but it is more than that. It's more than just a token apology. Repentance is a total transformation of mind. It's a complete change of heart, a recognition that we were running a hell-bound race and we need to do an about-face and run completely into the arms of Jesus and just collapse in his grace. That's the only thing to do. 
That's how we come to Christ. It's all of grace. And the next thing Peter says is they're to be baptized. That day, uh, there was not an empty pool in Jerusalem County. I'm pretty sure 3,000 people believed in Jesus, called upon him for salvation, for forgiveness of sin. They repented and they were baptized. We'll look at this uh, more next week, these final verses, as we gather outdoors. But baptism is the way the Bible teaches Christians to profess their faith in Christ. This is why we only baptize people who have believed in Jesus, not infants, because they cannot profess faith in Christ. We baptize people who have come to saving faith in Jesus and now want to identify with the risen Lord through the baptism that he first underwent and the baptism that identifies you both with Christ and with his church. The people were cut to the heart. They were told what to do with their conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit had wrought within them. So I'd like you just to revisit the question I asked earlier with me. What have you done with Jesus Christ? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Each of us must do something. You must do something with Christ. So have you ignored him? Have you intentionally made yourself deaf to the promise of God's word, finding it all quite difficult to believe. All of this of the virgin birth and the sinless life and the substitutionary death and the victorious resurrection and the soon coming day of his return. Have you deafened your ear to the witness of scripture? Have you run from God, choosing to live in the dark of your own sin rather than the light of his love? As we hear this invitation of old, I want to say to you with great certainty that this invitation still stands. You have nothing to do but to hear the good news of the gospel, to come to the end of yourself and to believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you far off from God? Is your heart cold toward him? Are you even near the kingdom, but you you just have yet to repent of sin and believe in Christ? Come. Come. Today. Let today be the day of salvation. Turn from your sin. Turn to the goodness and sweetness of Christ. Find forgiveness. Find salvation. Find life, both here and in the life to come. Let's pray. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity that it brings, for the promises that it contains, for the invitation that it rings with. Thank you for the good news of Jesus, that we don't have to live and die in our sin, but can live and die and live again because you are the Lord of life. And I pray that our lives in this moment and every day of this life in these last days would be lived to knowing you. 
walking by faith and things unseen, standing on your every promise, following the way of Jesus. I ask for your help in all of this. By the Spirit of God, in the name of Christ, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.